Lord, we're thankful we can be here this morning in your house. Lord, we're thankful we can lift up our voices to you. Lord, we're thankful that you hear us. Lord, this is just not something that we do on Sunday in vain. Lord, this is, this is a time when as a church body, we can get together as community, Lord, in community with each other, in community with you as a church body and sing praises to you and lift our voices to you and be a sweet sound to your ear this morning. Lord, thank you for your, your blessing on this, on this time and this day. Lord, we pray that, Lord, that we would not dirty it. Lord, we pray that we would submit ourselves to you. Lord, pray that we would choose to walk out of here today to choose to live a holy life before you. Thank you for this special time in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, first, I just want to uh, thank the, the praise team, um, Jeff and, and the rest of the team for serving in this way. You know, they they come here really early in the morning. They practice throughout the week, and then they come here really early in the morning. And then they do this service, and now they're doing another service. They're doing the 11 o'clock. So they're giving up a lot of time and, and praising before and leading a smaller congregation, right? I know that probably has an impact, too. I don't know. Uh, so I just want to... Aren't they, don't they do a great job? Aren't you guys thankful for our praise team? Yeah. There we go. Wonderful. And, and they do it, you know, for the praise and glory of God, but also as a service to you all as a body. So, so they're serving in that way. So we're thankful for that. Um, if you want to turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33. And we're uh, concluding a section in, this, in the scriptures in Jeremiah that's called, by some commentators, the Book of Comfort. It's right in the middle of Jeremiah, and it's where God is saying, I am going to restore. So there's, there's just, there's a, you know, there's judgment before, and then there, of, of Israel primarily, and then judgment against the nations primarily in the second half of the book. And right in the middle here, God is saying, I am going to restore. And we've looked at the ways in which he's going to restore in the first half of Jeremiah chapter 33. We, lock, we looked at his restoration of, of the city, right, that God is restoring Jerusalem, and so now we're going to look at how he's restoring two offices, the, the office of king and the office of priest, which were you know, central to Israel's identity and yet the most vulnerable positions under this, these conditions of exile, right, as they're going into exile. And I kind of admit that this morning sermon, there's going to be, I've got a, I've got a whole bunch of slides and it's, it's maybe more sort of theological in some ways because there's this difficult theological question I think we have to wrestle through. But really it comes down to a very practical question that um, both we, we may ask and also the people of Israel we're going to ask, which is, if my clicker is going to work, we want to know what the question is, don't you? It's on your piece of paper actually in front of you too, so you'll figure it out. But Oh, I'm not working here. Oh, man. We should have, we figured out the sound system beforehand. We should have figured out the clicker too. Okay. Hey. Oh. Yeah, not right. Hey, all right. Was that you or was that me, Joe? Okay. 
Hey, all right, all right. Which is this, will God, will God keep his word? Will God keep his word? For them, they are a people that are, this, this oracle or whatever, this vision that has taken place is probably in the very last year of King Zedekiah's reign, if it's connected with some of the others. The very last year of Zedekiah's reign, which is the last year in which they're still a nation and they are under great threat and they've got these siege walls set up and they are, they are preparing for battle and Jeremiah is already telling them they're going to lose. And so the people of Jerusalem and Israel are thinking to themselves, you know, God has promised that we were going to be a nation. Is God going to keep his word? God has promised that to King David that he was going to have a reign forever and our kings are being wiped out, like left and right, okay? And what's going to happen to the temple? Jeremiah is saying the temple is going to be destroyed. What's going to happen to our priesthood? Is God going to keep his word? And that was the question. And Jeremiah is going to say yes in, in time, yes. Uh, but for us, this is also a very practical question. Does God, will God keep his word? Will God keep his promises? He's made many, made many promises in scripture. Is he trustworthy? And it's a practical question. I mean, the first one that comes to my mind is the resurrection, right? Uh, this is a very practical question. Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So it really does affect the way we live. So I'm going to kind of get into the nitty gritties of the passage here. Um, but then I think it, we're going to go back out and say, what does it mean for us then that God keeps his word, okay? And how do we play a part in that? So let's just begin by reading it together, and then uh, I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get going into it. All right, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days, at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, and he will do what is just and right in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of Israel, nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night no longer come to their appointed time, then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken, and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. And I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars in the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore." And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you noticed that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose, so they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. This is what the Lord says. If I have not made my covenant with the day and established my laws of the heavens and the earth, this is what uh, this, uh, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. And then I'm also going to read a couple of verses from Jeremiah chapter 23, and, and it'll make sense in a minute, because these are almost, these are very parallel passages here. So in Jeremiah chapter 23, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely, and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety, this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we know in our minds that you are a promise-keeping God. 
We know that intellectually. We, we agree with that. And yet, oftentimes, uh, in the circumstances that surround us, we just don't see how, or we don't see in what way, or we, we just we believe it, but we don't necessarily live it as the way it really is. And so, Lord, I pray that you will speak through this, your word. I pray that you will use the Holy Spirit to work deep into our hearts and our minds the truth that you keep your promises, even in ways that we may not understand or anticipate. We trust you, God, and let us approach your word with that attitude of trust. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, if you're studying scripture, uh, any, anytime you're studying scripture, there's kind of three basic steps you may go through that I would recommend to you if you don't. Um, and oftentimes we sort of put all these things together into one, but sometimes it's good to take a step back and just uh, do it on purpose. Make sure that we're doing this right as we're interpreting God's word. So the first one that we see is observation. Let's just pick apart the text. Let's just read it closely. Let's check out the words. Let's see what is said, what's repeated. Let's just write down our observations. So that's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to do observations through this text. And then we're going to look at the interpretation. Okay, what, is it, what does it mean? And in particular, we're looking at first, what did it mean to the original audience? How would they have understood this, this word of God from Jeremiah? And then uh, through the lens of the New Testament, then what does it mean? How do we see, since this is a promise, how are we seeing it fulfilled? So interpretation and then application. What does it mean uh, for us or how do, how do we apply it? Uh, what's the practical application for our lives? for the way we think or the way we act, whatever that might be, okay? So we're going to go through, we're going to start with observation. Just look at the data. What is the text actually saying here? Okay? So the first thing that I observe is that God promises to fulfill his promise to David. God promises to fulfill his promise to David. Look at how it's stated here in verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days, I, um, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, and he will do what is just and right in the land. So God is saying, there's, I'm keeping a promise. So what is the promise that God made to David? And we see that in um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, it says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So God had said to David, David had come to God and said, God, I want to be, I'm going to be so grateful to you. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. It's a good religious Im, uh, impulse on David's behalf. And God turns around and basically says to David, David, you say you're going to build me a house. I am going to build you a house. And what he means by this, I'm going to build up your household. I'm going to make uh, you and your descendants and your reign, you're going you're gonna to last forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So, so here it is. It's, it's going to last forever. Your reign, your, your household, your descendants, you're always going to be there. That was the promise that God has made to David. That's the covenant that God made to David. Okay. Now, if you're thinking as an Israelite at this time, you're in Jerusalem, the city's about to be destroyed. If you if you believe Jeremiah, or maybe you're in exile and you're reading this later and you're looking and you're saying, hold on, God said to David that we are going to, or God said to David, there's, you know, your reign, your throne is going to last forever, and here I am sitting in exile, and we have no king, or our king is, uh, you know, 
stuffed away in the dungeon or, or in the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar, who's our real king, you're going to say, what? is God keeping his promise? You see, this, the kingdom is so fragile here at this point. It looks like it's destroyed. It looks like God is not keeping his promise. Now, God actually uh, reiterates this promise, and we get more of the branch metaphor here in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and his roots, a branch, uh, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The metaphor here is, right, we've got this, maybe this, uh, it's a stump, right? It's been chopped down. We got this stump of Jesse, and yet uh, coming up out of that is this, is this shoot that is coming up, or, or there is a branch that is coming out. You see, it's, it's coming up out of God's promises to Jesse, out of his promises to David, there's going to be this new king who's going to come, a new branch, this new life is going to arise out of this. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So this, whoever this king is going to be, the spirit of God is on him, which is enabling him to rule in this right way. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide with what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness. That is, it's not just, it's not just the appearance of things that this king is going to rule with. It's going to be out of his own righteousness, out of his, this special insight that God is giving him. This righteousness, he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth, and he will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with his breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. So he's going to rule with justice. And that means that the, that the poor and the needy who are often neglected, especially you know, during that time when it's the powerful who are rule and oppress and take charge, right? He, this, this new ruler is going to come and he's going to flip the system. And he's going to say, no, I'm going to rule with righteousness and justice, not with uh, a bias or anything like that towards the wealthy or towards the rich or towards the powerful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rule with justice. So this, that's what this king is going to do. Um, and righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Okay? So our first observation is that God is going to fulfill his promise to David. Secondly, the king will rule with justice. And we just saw that in Isaiah chapter 11. It's re-expressed here uh, in Jeremiah chapter 33. It says, he will do what is just and right in the land. So, so this king is going to come in. He's not going to be like the last four kings of Israel who carried on the same kind of oppression and bloodshed and slavery uh, of the pagan kings around them he's that, that ruled with injustice. And he's not going to be like the Babylonian king or the next kings that are going to come who also rule with injustice. He's going to be a different kind of king who's going to do what is just and right in the land. So that's, this, that's what this king is going to be like. The third observation that I make is that this king will be a savior. This king will be a savior. He's going to bring about salvation. And so it says uh, in Jeremiah chapter 23 and 33, verse 16, I've layered these two on top of each other um, here to, to, to sort of show the comparison and contrast between the two. Okay, so in, in 23, it says, in his days, Judah will be saved. That is in, the, in this, this branch that comes up from David, Okay. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. So in 23, it's, it's the, the king's days, and it's all of Israel, and then it's his name. So what are we going to call this king? We are going to call this king the Lord, our righteous Savior. That is, the king is going to bring salvation. 
In 33, it's very close to a copy-paste here, uh, except that it says, in those days, maybe not, not a big difference there, and then Jerusalem will live in safety. And so the reason why I think the shift is here is that um, the focus in 33 is on the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem sort of stands as, the, as all of Israel in some sense, okay? Um, and then it will be called the Lord our righteous Savior. So in other words, the city of Jerusalem is going to be called the Lord our righteous Savior. How does that work? That's un unusual logic to us, right? Because why would you call the city a Savior? And I don't think it's because the city comes in and saves, right? It's clear from the verse before this in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 15, that it's the branch from David, right? This promised king that's going to come who is our Savior. And yet here the city gets, gets that name. And I think it's because that as God is saving, he is, he is endowing his people uh, with the same name. That is, they, they point to God the Savior, right? So we get the identity, or the Jerusalem gets a, a similar kind of identity, takes on the identity of the one who saves it, which is the king. Does that make sense? So, so Jesus is coming. Oh, I'm ahead of myself. The king is coming. You guys know where this is going. The king is coming, right? And he is establishing, he gets the identity, he is the savior, and he puts his sort of stamp on the city. This is a city that is saved by the king, okay? This is a city saved by the Lord, our righteous savior. Okay? So, regardless, the king comes in and the king brings about salvation in some sense. Okay? Our next observation is that this king will reign forever, just like it was said it was promised. It says in verse 17, for this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of Israel. There we go. Just like we saw in God's promise to David, David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of Israel. The next observation, though, and this is the one that's a little bit tricky, is that God promises an eternal Levitical priesthood. God is promising an eternal Levitical priesthood. So, so not only will David not have a, fail to have a man sit on his throne forever, nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. So in this in this restored Jerusalem, in this restored temple, there's going to be this Levitical priesthood where there's going to be somebody that is continually uh, giving burnt offerings to and sacrifices before the Lord at the temple. Okay? That's the promise. And then the other, both, oh, actually, I've got one more after this. Both promises are eternal. He goes on and he says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that the day and night no longer come to their appointed time, then my covenant with David and my servant and my covenant with the Levites who are priests ministering before me can be broken, and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. So both of these things are tied to God's covenant with the, the sky, right? Essentially, this is a poetic way, I think, of saying, if you can stop the sun from shining, if you can stop the sun from going down, then I'll break my covenant, right? It's, it's, it's this eternal, it's this everlasting, it's going to continue on forever. So both of these promises are tied to this eternal, you know, thing that God has put in place, okay? And then finally, the final observation, promise this time, is that both link to Abraham's blessing of a holy people. Both of these link to Abraham's blessing of a holy people, 
Okay, I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars in the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. That language there, the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, could be familiar to you, right? Because it's a phrase that comes up throughout Scripture a number of times, especially the stars in the sky, right? What do we think of? Well, I've kind of given away. We think of Abraham. God's promise to Abraham, I will surely bless you and make your descendants, what? As numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore, and your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. So I'm going to, to Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Countless descendants, right? Now that's to the whole nation, and here in Jeremiah 33, God says, uh, I'm going to make the, the descendants of David and the, the priesthood, the descendants of Levi, as numerous. So he just pulls out two of the offices, the, king off, the kingly office and the priestly office, and they are going to be as numerous. So it's God's promise to all of Abraham and his descendants now sort of localized to the promise to the kings and to and to the priests, right? Or to the sons of David and the sons of Levi. They're going to be as numerous. So we've got this sort of uh, layered on top of each other. God's promise to the entire, is all of Israel, and then God's promise to these two offices here, okay? So if we sort of put all these observations together, again, thinking in the context here, they are looking at, these are the two offices which are most vulnerable to their present circumstance. If you're a farmer or you're a craftsman or you're one of the other tribes, it's still absolutely disruptive to be pulled out of your land, right? But you can go to a city in Babylon and you can plant your garden like Jeremiah says, God says to the exiles, you know, plant your gardens, build your houses, marry, be given in marriage. You can work your way into the economic system in some way. But if you're a descendant of David, then to Babylon you are a threat because they don't want, they don't want the people thinking there's any other power structure other than the Babylonian power structure. And so a, you know, a kingdom comes in, what are they going to do? They're going to try to wipe out the whoever's in power, which is the descendants of the king, the king and his descendants. And that's exactly what they try to do, although they leave, right, descendants, okay? Uh, but they're very vulnerable, out of power. And if you're, a, if you're a Levite, if you're somebody who serves in the temple, well, your temple's about to be destroyed, depending on when you read this, or it's already been destroyed, and it's already been plundered. And your whole livelihood and your whole life was bound up in the worship of, of God, especially localized at the temple of Jerusalem, and that's been wiped out. What do you do? You're taken off into a foreign Babylonian city and there's no place where you're conducting worship. There's no centralization, that you see? And so they would be the most vulnerable. And God is saying, no, these two vulnerable offices, and not only that, but these are, these are two that are core to Israel's identity as who they are, right? If, if they don't have a king, who are they? And if they don't have the Levitical priesthood, which is supposed to sort of be a central identity to their followers of God as Yahweh, then who are they? It's core to their identity. So it's both core to their identity and especially vulnerable in these circumstances, being wiped out. And yet, Jeremiah's got the audacity to come in because he's got a word from God to say God is going to restore and it's going to be like the sand on the seashore. Okay? So that's, that's our observations here. So now we get to interpretation. 
interpretation. And again, our first thing, our first question is, okay, well, how would the original audience have understood this? Now, a lot of Jeremiah's original audience didn't believe him, right? He was an outcast. But let's say you're somebody in this audience that believes Jeremiah. What are you getting out of this? You're going to say, all right, God is going to restore the two offices which form our identity as God's people. So you're seeing all this. God is going to bring some kind of restoration around the Levitical priesthood and the kingship. So fairly straightforward interpretation, maybe if you're there in the audience. Now, you don't know exactly when. It's just at that time, in those days, it's unclear as to when, but somehow God is going to bring about, God is going to fulfill his promise, okay? The other part of the fulfillment is this, uh, that Jesus is the king. So this is, I'm not going to spend much time here, because I'm, I'm looking out at you guys, you guys know, right? Jesus comes as the Messiah. He comes as the king, not as the king that people expected, right? Not as this person coming in with a sword to destroy Rome, right? But as, as the suffering Messiah, as the suffering servant that comes in and dies on the cross, who, who demonstrates his power over sin through his death on the cross, who defeats the devil there, who shows his power by rising again, right, and who is now enthroned on high. Jesus is the king. Anybody want to debate me there? I don't think so, okay? I think you guys understand that, okay? Jesus is the king. He fulfills that. He is the, the branch from David. He is the Lord, our righteous Savior. That's such good news, isn't it? I'm so glad that all of, of all the power structures and all of the the kings of our world, that there is a king who is coming who is bringing righteousness and justice from the spirit of the Lord. So good. But now the question is, what about the Levitical priesthood? Because there isn't a Levitical priesthood going on right now. Okay, so what about the Levitical priesthood? Does, does God keep his word or not? And this, I'm just going to admit that I'm like 80% sure of what I think is the best answer. I'm 100% sure that God keeps his promises, but I'm about 80% sure what I think has the most weight, okay? But if some of you guys disagree, that's okay, all right? I, sometimes we come to interpretation like this and we say, this is tricky. I, I don't totally know, uh, but we, we try to come to our best conclusion, okay? So I'm just, I'm just being completely honest. I've studied this for a long time. I've wrestled with it, and so I'll share what I think is probably correct, um, but I could be wrong. So I'll say that, humility, okay? So there's two possibilities here. What about the Levitical priesthood? One possibility is that this is a promise which God is yet to fulfill in national Israel. So in this view, it's often tied to uh, millennium, right? That God, when Jesus comes back, he's going to establish a thousand-year reign. And in that thousand-year reign, there's going to be a reestablishment of the temple. The temple is going to be rebuilt uh, as described here, as described in Ezekiel, there's a very detailed description of how the temple will be rebuilt in Ezekiel. And at that time, the Levitical priesthood is going to be reestablished, or at least a portion of that is going to be reestablished, and the priests are going to once again offer burnt offerings and sacrifices before God at the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? So that is uh, one possibility, and what I think is the biggest strength of that possibility is that... Um, is that it's clear here that it's the Levitical priesthood, right? And Jesus was not, we'll see the alternative is that this is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is not a Levite. Jesus is not from that. So how do, how do we reconcile that? So I think there's a strength to that view, okay? But there's some weaknesses as well, right? This is supposed to be, there's an eternal nature to this. Uh, it's going to continue on forever, but that is not going to continue on. There's going to be no temple in heaven, 
are on the new heaven and the new earth. There's no temple after that millennium. Okay, um, there's also the question of why, right? Why, if, if Jesus has done away with the burnt offerings and sacrifices, then what is the purpose of there being a priesthood to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices? So that's a hard question. I don't know how I would answer that if I were to take this view. So I think this is a possibility, but I, I do think that there's a better view, which is this, and that is that this is fulfilled in Jesus and then also in the church, okay? So let me explain why. I'll, I'll, I'll present the case. Number one is that it's clear from the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest. It says over and over and over and over again, Jesus is our high priest. He's our high priest, okay? So Jesus is clearly our high priest. Everybody, everybody really agrees with that. That's really undeniable. Secondly, the writer of Hebrews addresses the fact that he is not a Levite. So the writer of Hebrews himself wrestles through this and thinks through and says, wait, how can he be our high priest if he's not a Levite? Look what it says in chapter 7 of Hebrews. It says, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood. So he said that that was the law. It was through the priesthood, no denying that. Why was there still a need for another priest to come one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. So he's pointing out, okay, there was this priesthood that was set up, but there was some kind of a need for a different kind of priest. For when that priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served on the altar. So God is, it's clear that the writer of Hebrews has established that Jesus is the high priest. So he's saying there's a change in priesthood that has occurred. Why has the change in priesthood occurred? How can we, it's clear that Jesus is not a Levite and that nobody from the line of Judah ever served there or was supposed to serve at the altar even. And yet, how, how are we to reconcile? You see where the writer of Hebrews is wrestling through this question. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. Okay, so the writer of Hebrews feels the same tension that I'm feeling, okay? Uh, however, why do we need a priest? We need an eternal priest like Melchizedek. He goes on, and what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulations as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. So the Levitical priests were priests on the basis of their ancestry, Right? If you were a child of a Levite, you were a Levite. If you were the child of a priest, you were a priest. But then they would grow up and they would sin and they would need to make atonement for themselves and then they would die and then another priest would have to come in their place. And so God, sa uh, God says through the writer of Hebrews, right, we needed another kind of priest, right? One not on the basis of their descendants, but on the basis of an indestructible life. Now, he's drawing this to Melchizedek because in Melchizedek's story, Melchizedek has no beginning in the story and no end in the story. I don't think that means that he's like an eternal being or anything like that. But I think just in the way it's structured in the story, it's like there's no beginning or end to this guy. And, and the writer of Hebrews picks up on that and says, look at Jesus. Jesus really has no beginning or end, right? He has an indestructible life. He died on the cross and then he was raised and now he cannot be destroyed again. Therefore, he can serve not on the basis of ancestry, but on some quality within himself that is his indestructible life. And he is without sin, so he never has to make atonement for himself. 
And he can always stand before us, mediating between us and the Father through his perfect priesthood and his perfect sacrifice. Okay? And so what we get here is that Jesus fulfills the office of the priesthood, but better, way better than a human priesthood, a human Levitical priesthood, purely human Levitical priesthood could do. So Jesus comes in and he fulfills this and he fulfills it better. So my view is that Jesus, if fulfills this, not because of ancestry, but because of office and even better than could have been done through the Levites, okay? So that's, that's my 80% sure view, okay? So uh, it is declared in chapter seven, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Okay? Uh, and then finally, I said before, that is fulfilled both in Jesus and the church. And so I think we get this idea that um, just like the city of Jerusalem gets sort of stamped, God's people get stamped with the character of their Savior, we too get stamped with the character of our Savior. And Jeff read it this morning. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So in other words, Jesus is the perfect king and the perfect priest. He alone is our king and our high priest. And yet he makes us, because he saves us, he makes us a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, not that we have any authority or power or intermediary capability on our own, right? But we nevertheless get to be stamped with his identity in this way. And this is an identity we can embrace, that we are a royal priesthood, not because of anything that we deserve, but because God stamps us in his, in his salvation with his character and his identity. And then I love, I, I love verse 10, right? That we, we who did, had not received mercy, we have received mercy. How do we get this? We get this only because Jesus is the king who saves us and he's the priest who forgives us our sins, okay? And by the way, before I go there real quick, um, this I think then also corresponds to this observation that we made earlier of the descendants of David, right? Or the descendants of Abraham, that they are as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And we as descendants of Abraham through faith, right? We are, we are picked up, we are carried on in that, right? And so we get to be, the, the, the little kings and priests, right? The descendants of our father, the little brothers and sisters of Jesus who carry on that uh, and, and who get to participate actually in the fulfillment of God's promise. So application number one, God keeps his word. Again, this is, this is practical. It's practical for us that God keeps his word. If he doesn't, what are we doing here, right? We're to be pitied above all, Paul would say. But if he does, what a transformation that should make in our hearts and our minds and our lives. God keeps his word. And then secondly, oh, by the way, how does God keep his word in Christ? For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So every promise of God is fulfilled in Christ. And then secondly, we receive and participate in his promise keeping. We receive his promise keeping, right? As king, Jesus saves us, right? He is the Lord, our savior. As priest, he offers himself as the perfect sacrifice so that our sins are forgiven, so that we can draw near to him, so we get to receive the benefits of God's promise keeping and we get to participate in it. 
as a holy nation, as a royal priesthood, as a people who have now received mercy, we get to participate in what God is doing in the world. And what do we do? What does that look like? I think that looks like, uh, we could say, a ministry of reconciliation, right? What was one of the roles of the priest? It was to act as this intermediary, this, uh, this, this one who spoke to God on behalf of the people and to the people on behalf of God, and we get to fulfill that. Oh, what are we trying to do there? We're just pointing people to Jesus, right? The perfect king and the perfect priest, and we get to participate in that. That's exciting. I don't know why God uses us like that. I don't often feel like we're much of a royal priesthood or that I'm a royal priest in any sense, right? Uh, but that's God's identity that he is stamping on us. And again, not because of us, but because of his character and his identity. So be encouraged this morning. God is God keeps his promise. He keeps his promises to us in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to... Um, I just want you to ask, I want to ask you that you, you will make this real and evident in our lives as we go, we go about our week. Let us move forward with the confidence that no matter the circumstances around us, no matter the circumstances around us which would say, well, I, I don't know how, God, you're keeping your promises. We remember that you do keep your promises. Not always in ways we understand or, or the ways that we would... Uh, we would necessarily see it with our own mindset, but, but you keep them nonetheless. And so help us to hold firm to you, to not be moved, but hold firm in those promises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand as we close. That's right, praising our Savior all day long. You know, that's another priestly thing that they would do, actually. The, the purpose of the, of the Levites was to uh, worship God and facilitate the worship of God for the people. And so as we come, we bring um, the, a sacrifice of praise, right? So, so you guys have already fulfilled some of that priestly function already this morning. So guys, I want to, again, thank you for coming on this Labor Day weekend. You're dismissed.